knowing what you believe and why you believe it lies at the very heart of Christian experience, worship, and everyday living. The Bible's not about you. You're not David. Trouble in life is not Goliath. Jesus is going to be David in the shadow. Goliath is going to be sin and death. Who's that make you? Uh, and it doesn't make you the Israelites in the corner. Like, He's going to kill all of us. That's exactly who you are. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it. It is fatal, fatal for us to think that we can ever move on from the gospel. The great problem in the evangelical church today where the scripture is concerned is not the inerrancy of the Bible. The great problem in the evangelical church today is the sufficiency of scripture. We don't think it's sufficient to do what we have to do. So we have to wake up what's happening and recognize that the problem really is our lack of theology. Hi, welcome to Theology Else. I am Colleen Sharp and my co-host is Angela Whitehorn. And before we get to today's guest, I wanted to mention a couple of things. The Conference on Suffering is coming up in a couple of weeks in Freehold, New Jersey. There's information on the episode notes or on our website if you are interested in that. And if you want to come and can't afford to, there's some scholarships out there. So just contact us through the website. Uh, I also wanted to mention I've been trying to give a shout out to some other great podcasts. And I wanted to mention one of the gals in our group, she and her husband, um, her name's Samantha, and her husband Josh have a podcast called So Talk to Me. And I really do love this podcast because I think it's unique to have this married couple talking about different things. Sometimes they're transparent about relationship stuff and get into practical and maybe some theological. So I'm going to link that in the episode notes too. And they've been going for a little while. So you can even go back through their episodes like I did. So check those out. And we are here with William Bookestein, and he's pastor of Emanuel Fellowship Church in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And we're going to talk to him about his new book, which is, I think, um, released, did you say March 1st? Yeah, actually, it's available for sale uh, today. Okay, so I think we'll be um, releasing this actually after um, thinking about the dates now. I didn't think about what date it was. And And we're going to talk to him about his book, The Future of Everything, Essential Truths About End Times. We've been wanting to do an episode on this subject for so long and looking for the right guest, and we definitely found the right guest. But could just really quick, could you tell us um, about some of the other books you've written? Because you were telling me prior to the interview, and I think a lot of our uh, listeners would be interested in some of those. Sure. Uh, Yes, I have a series with Reformation Heritage Books. Um, on the Reformed Confessions for Children. So illustrated stories of the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Canons of Dort, um, and have uh, just published this past year with RHB, again, a church history coloring book, which features uh, at least one character from each of the last 20 centuries of the church that 
uh, each of the characters sort of helped help um, move the story forward from the Apostle Paul to Machen. And uh, as we're studying those characters, we're coloring, we're investing. Um, and so, yeah, your uh, families might be interested in that as well. Yeah, we have a lot of young moms in our in our group and as listeners, a lot of homeschoolers also, but they're always looking for great resources for children. So um, this is called a colorful past. Okay. And we'll link those in our episode notes too. And so, you know, I was on Facebook today and somebody had made a graphic with a quote from your book and I should have saved this one myself when I was reading it, but I thought it was so great. It, you say, God doesn't give us prophecy so that we can build elaborate timelines or speculate on the precise manner in which God will keep his word. He speaks about our future so that we will live faithfully in the present. He speaks to the contemporary audience to develop in us a robust vision for the end. I thought that was kind of a a good, kind of represented what your book really is about. And we have so many people that have come out of dispensationalism or even dispensational listeners and course, you know that that's a big theme within dispensationalism and times theology. And so this is a subject that a lot of people are so interested in. But just tell us a summary of what the book is about. Well, the book really uh, tries to remind us that God has a plan. Um, That's so critical for us, first of all, to know that, that when everything around us doesn't seem to make sense to us, God is working out a plan and he's right on track and God is um, he's interested in us knowing about that plan. He wants us to be assured that his plan is on track. He wants us uh, to have confidence and um, to be able to anticipate with joy and hope uh, the way that he's going to wrap up this present age. So that's really the the big goal is to help us to uh, be more clear on what God says about the end times so that we can uh, derive comfort from that clarity so that we can um, gain courage to live well in this present age and so that we can comfort uh, and have compassion on those uh, who don't yet know about how they fit into God's plan. And so we, we can't really, um, we, you know, we could try to make up things that make us feel better about this present life and the life to come but it wouldn't be meaningful if it's not based on what God says is actually true. So, so that's, the, that's the hope of the book, to help us see the importance of studying the end times and to walk us through what it means for us individually um, and then what it means for the cosmos. And then we, we cl- I close on uh, a couple of practical sections uh, or specifically focusing on the kingdom of God and on the mission of the church and how, how our understanding of kingdom and mission flows out of uh, what God teaches us about the end. You know, William, um, I think a lot of people think, and I actually used to think this way as well, I think a lot of people think that end times is just too complicated and it's not very important, so they just kind of don't study it. They just think, eh, not essential, doesn't matter to me, everything will work out. Um, What would you say about why we should study the end times? Well, it's it's sort of like... um, it's sort of like reading reading a book, and especially a, a, a well written book. Um, well written books bring up bring up question after question after question in your mind, and it's not until you get to the end that you can kind of look back and, and say, "Wow, okay, I, I see how wh- how this was all working out." In a sense, God gives us a glimpse 
uh, into the end so that we can make sense of what's going on right now. Um, so the, and, and so that we can anticipate. So for example, uh, just, just take, for example, the resurrection. Um, I think way too many of us forget uh, to prioritize the resurrection. Um, but we all sense that we, that our bodies are inadequate. We, we look in a mirror and we think our bodies are inadequate and we feel the problems in our bodies. And we think, boy, is, you know, is, is this just going to keep deteriorating? And we remember that God has a promise for us that includes restored bodies. And I just find that tremendously hopeful. Um, so I think that, you know, sometimes uh, eschatology is presented sort of like, you know, the way a chemist might describe the properties of the sun. And it, the Bible really presents eschatology in a way that's much more like gazing upon a dazzling sunset. And uh, and that inspires us. It gives us hope. It grounds us in, um, in in the beauty of God's plan that he's working out. And that's that's vital for living well here and now. You know, I I meant to mention earlier that I love the way that the book is set up, and there is also study questions for each chapter. So this is the sort of book that you could go through with a group, but I actually started doing the study questions just on my own. So it's something you could read on your own, or maybe you have a book group or a Bible study group, and you could go through those, um, you know, with them. But one of the things I think, especially if we've come out of sometimes the charismatic movement or dispensationalism, where there's maybe a wrong emphasis on prophecy, it's sometimes difficult for us to know how we should understand prophecy. Can you um, talk about that, how we should understand prophecy from Scripture? Yeah. That's, a, that's a great question. And I think the most, the most important thing to remember about prophecy, this is going to sound super obvious, but it's, prophecy is part of the Bible, which is a story. And I think a lot of times the prophets are, um, you know, we, we sort of forget that they, they were moving the story forward in their day. And what they were doing is helping us to ultimately focus our attention on Jesus Christ. And so if we look at the prophets and, and study the prophets, and if, if, the, if the message of the prophets um, isn't directing us to Jesus, to find our hope in Christ, and to, uh, to, to gain a better sense of how everything is, is going to be worked out in Jesus, then we're really missing their message. So I think what we want to do is we want to back up and say, okay, the Bible is a story. It's a story of God's redemptive work. Um, God creates the world. He establishes a relationship with people. Uh, that relationship is marred by sin. And from that point on, when God comes and speaks his promise of redemption to our, our first parents, um, that story is sort of set in motion. How is this redemption going to work out? And that's what the prophets do. They function as, um, as, as storytellers uh, and, and helping us to see that God is, has not forgotten Israel. He hasn't forgotten anybody. The, the, you know, the Gentiles are included in this plan as well. So in that sense, what we, what we need to remember is that the prophets are they're preachers. They're, they're modern-day preachers calling for the, the covenantal loyalty of God's people. And toward that end, they inject images of the future to spur us on to faithfulness. 
So I'm just thinking, we just did an episode uh, last week on cessationism, and we talked about prophecy. And so it sounds to me like um, what you're saying about prophecy is very different than some of the um, modern ideas of prophecy, that prophecy might be, you know, hey, God gave me a word for you that you're supposed to go to that college um, in that state. Um, that prophecy is something very different than some of our modern, newer ideas of what prophecy might be. Yeah, well, the, you're right, um, and of course, you know, probably since the since you know the beginning of human history, people have um, have 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 said things like that. You know, God told me to do this or that when when it, when it wasn't when when God hadn't even told them that. So, um, yeah, what, what we're doing, we're looking back to a, to a word that was spoken in history mm-hmm. and recorded in a book that uh, we believe God has sealed, um, that it's, it's a finished book. And, and all of it is, it's really, of course, it's the story of God, right? So it's, it's a story about who God is. Um, it's a story about his character. It's a story about his, you know, how he is as a God of order is going to work everything out according to his will. And so that, that's what the prophets were doing. And that's what the prophets do for us today. They they give us they give us windows. They open windows up uh, into God and His intentions to fix everything, uh, to to restore what was broken, to to punish those who will not be restored, who refuse to submit themselves to Him. Um, and so, you know, the, the 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 prophets were always speaking for God. They weren't. Um, you know, trying to prove their points by saying, you know, God said this or that. They were speaking for God. And we need to remember that as well. We looked, we looked back to the prophets to hear a message of the, about the Lord. The second section of your book is about personal eschatology. And I did find that even if it wasn't directly practical, some of the stuff that really I found a lot of practical throughout this book. But can you talk about what personal eschatology means? Yeah, personal eschatology is really um, answering the question: What uh, what is going to happen to me? Um, I will one day stand before God, and I I might be living when Christ returns, or I might have died first before Christ returns. But one day I'm going to stand before before God, and so so personal eschatology. Um, first of all, it impresses upon us our mortality. And, and I think that's a, a very important subject today. It's, um, it's something that we, we try to push away. We, um, we, don't, we don't live in a day in which death, at least for many of us, for, 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 for Westerners perhaps, uh, where death is always very visible. And so we can forget about dying. Not that we can entirely believe that we're immortal, but we can push it out of our minds. Um, you know, we say until we get older or until some tragedy strikes us or someone near us. And God throughout scripture is, is, is regularly calling people to consider their end. Um, and so um, we, we need to come to terms with our mortality and we need to prepare for dying. Uh, not only by, uh, of course, most importantly, trusting in Jesus Christ and, and bearing fruits that are worthy of repentance, but storing up treasures in heaven to, to live like investors. And um, 
So that's that's what we're calling. That's what we're encouraging uh, in in that chapter, preparing for the end that is inevitable. We don't know when it is, of course, could be soon. Um, it's it's going to be soon in terms of the scope of the of uh, of God's grand timeline. Um, but we want to make sure that we're preparing. I just love how um, your book um brings things back to the gospel. I just wanted to read a short quote um, from the chapter where you are talking about preparing for death. No one is ready to die who is not entrusting their eternity to the eternal son of God. The only way to die well is to become hidden with Christ in God so that Christ's life, death, and resurrection become yours. In his death, Christ has borne for us the wrath of God against our sin. And, um, you know, on Theology Gals, we we very often talk about the gospel and how it relates to whatever topic we're talking about. So I just really love the way that your book brought eschatology into, you know, relates how it relates to the gospel and why why eschatology is important relating to the gospel. Um, so, that kind of leads me to our next question. What should we understand about the return of Christ? Well, we should we should understand, first of all, that it's, it's in Scripture um, described, uh, presented to us as a historic event. Um, it's not a, a metaphor, um, you know, f- for sort of the improvement of sort of a social awareness or more of a, like a uh, improved God consciousness or something like that. We believe Christians have always believed that one day the son of God who came to earth um, as a, as a person to understand our weaknesses and to bear the sins of the elect and who was crucified, who actually died, who ascended into heaven and is presently preparing a place for us is actually going to come again. And the images that we have in scripture of Jesus coming again are very different than the images we have of his coming for the first time. The first time God shows amazing uh, condescension. He comes in the person of uh, a helpless baby, at least in all appearances, helpless and needy and dependent. And what we, and and then he submits to all of the, the weaknesses of human nature. Um, in order to save people and to redeem people from the curse of the law, which is why people die in the first place. When Christ comes again, it will be in, in great glory and, and strength and power. And so, so we first of all need to affirm that, um, that Jesus is coming again. And for Christians, we, we want to learn to anticipate that return, um, to, to anticipate Jesus coming back as the return of a, of a friend, who we've missed uh, to return as a, a, you know, a master who's going to care for us and set the house right that has become disordered uh, to bring justice in, in a, into a world that uh, knows so much hurt and sadness. And so we want to learn to anticipate the, the return of Jesus Christ to um, you know, pray for the return of Christ to want Jesus to come soon, um, but also to to think about the return of Jesus Christ as a um, a mandate for us to be faithful in the present. Uh, Jesus talks about 
it gives a story of a king who's gone away to a distant country and is coming back again. And he's left his servants in place to be faithful, to manage his house. And that means being faithful in all of our various callings. It means being diligent in evangelism, outreach, um, to be faithful in the church, in our neighborhood, uh, in our families. And so the, the return of Christ is, is that event that everything is, is, is hurtling toward. And it, it really ought to be um, central in, in our theology, especially a theology of hope. The subject of the millennium is a source of disagreement among Christians, even Reformed Christians. We have post-millennials and pre-millennials and amillennials. Can you talk about some of the different views and why you think that there is disagreements among us, especially, you know, even as Reformed Christians? Yeah, so I, I just first want to say that um, th- this is, you know, the fact that there are different views on this, um, on the one hand, we could say that it's disappointing. Um, you know, we, it, it'd be wonderful if, if Christians agreed on everything, Um but on the, on the other hand, I do want to just say that um, the fact that there are disagreements at least says this, that God's people are, you know, are, are trying to search the scriptures and come up with, uh, the, the, you know, a, a sort of a summary of according to their best understanding of what God is going to do. And so I, I do think that we ought to, we, you know, we want to try to approach this issue with charity. Um, it, it, it shouldn't define, uh, it shouldn't define our Theology, um, you know, I used to pastor in an area where we would frequently get students from a school that was um, strongly dispensational, and uh, I would we'd get students come and worship with us sometimes, and sometimes a student would introduce him or herself to me, and one of the very first questions they would ask is, "What's your view of of the of the uh, millennium?" And well, I would say, "Well, that's that's a fine question, but." Um, it's a it's a it's a poor replacement for one's eschatology. If that's if that's how we understand um, the end times, it's it's a truncated understanding of the end times. It's much bigger than that. But so so having said that, when we think about the millennium, we're trying to make sense of a difficult passage, primarily in Revelation chapter twenty, where several times John uh, speaks of a thousand years, and um, in relation to the, to the return of Christ uh, and the reign that Christ establishes. And so the, the leading positions um, th- that are trying to answer the question, what are the thousand years and when do they occur, especially in relation to Jesus' return, um, are, are primarily three. Uh, premillennialists believe the millennium to be a literal thousand year period in which Christ will reign on earth after his return. Um, Postmillennialists tend to see the thousand years as a more or less literal time period of uh, uh, an age of prosperity uh, on earth at the end of which Jesus Christ will return. And the position that um, sort of the historic reformed position uh, is called amillennialism, which simply says that Christ is presently reigning. He's on the throne now. He has ascended and is continuing to work in the world, in the church, by his Holy Spirit, through his people, and that Satan is presently bound. He is limited 
in his activities. And, and, you know, some of the evidence for that is you know, the, the way that the gospel has broken out of, you might say, out of ethnic Israel into the world. Um, when Jesus first called his disciples, you know, the church was tiny. And now, however you read the statistics, there are somewhere around 2 billion people who adhere to the Christian faith. Satan's season of almost total, at least seemingly total uh, reign over the peoples of this world is breaking. And so um, that, that sort of in a nutshell, that's, that's how those three, those three main positions break down. Um, the millennium, we would, the, I would say the millennium is now Jesus Christ is reigning, not, not just for a thousand years, but for the entire period, however long it's going to be from Christ's first coming until his second coming. Talk to us a little bit about what the scripture teaches about how the dead will rise. I, I know that you write a little bit about um, there is a, a great misunderstanding and just lack of understanding about bodily resurrection in um, in evangelicalism and in our churches. So tell us a little bit about um, how the dead will rise. Well, that's a great question. And I think sadly, um, it, it seems to me, this is just anecdotal, but it seems that many Christians don't really know what to make of the resurrection. And, it, and it's tragic because um, scripture, you know, Paul puts the resurrection just at the center of the Christian hope. But when you, when you go to a funeral, especially for somebody who had been ill for a long time or whose body had been declining, um, it's almost inevitable. You're going to hear somebody say something like, you know, so-and-so is, you know, hand in hand with Jesus or is, you know, dancing in heaven with a new body. And we certainly understand what, what, what the person is trying to communicate that, you know, the, the, the woes that they'd experienced in the body, um, they're, they're not experiencing anymore. Um, but, but what about the doctrine that at the last day when Christ judges everybody, he's actually going to remake our bodies. Um, so, so that's, that's, I think we need to recover the, the focus on the resurrection of the body. My, my body um, right now is, is lagging behind the work that God is doing in my spirit. Um, you know, Jesus even says to his disciples, the spirit is willing, the body is weak, the flesh is weak. Um, we have bodies that just can't, aren't keeping pace with the work that God is doing in our spirits. And the, certainly the work of reformation and transformation that God will do uh, to those who die in Christ, um, they'll, they'll be totally purified from sin, um, but they'll still be yearning for bodies. And so I, I think one of the reasons perhaps that we, don't, that we don't think about the resurrection as much as we ought to today is because we live in an age where uh, in an unprecedented way, our bodies tend to be pretty healthy. You know, life is pretty good in the body that we have. Um, and so we don't, we don't think about the need for a new body. Um, but so, so all of that, uh, it, it, just simply to say that we need to recover um, a, a, a solid belief that everybody who has ever lived is, is going to be raised up with new bodies that uh, in which they're going to stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. And 
however we have decided in our life, either for Christ or against Christ, we're going to live in a body with a soul forever, either in restored paradise or in a place where God is certainly present, but only in judgment to our eternal shame and misery. But it won't be a, a disembodied eternity for anybody. And so we need to, we, we just really need to recover uh, the fact that throughout Scripture, the, the, the terminus of God's promise is to be with his people in new bodies. That section was especially encouraging to me as I do have very um, serious health issues and an autoimmune disease, and it's something that I think about quite a bit. Can you talk about the the judgment and what scripture says about the final judgment? Yeah, this is a hard uh, subject to introduce to a lot of people today. Um, judgment sounds very negative. Um, it's It's almost become assumed today that any form of judgment is bad. You know, don't, don't judge me. Um, we don't, we don't want to be judged. We want to live how we want without any repercussion. Uh, most of the time we want that, right? But sometimes we want justice. Sometimes we want our day in court. We want, uh, we, we need to be vindicated, we feel. And so when, when we think about judgment as uh, first of all, the vindication of the righteousness of God, that one day God is going to declare in a way that nobody can deny, even those who have denied God in their ordinary life, um, that they will not be able to deny that God was right about everything. And um, all of the slander against God and um, the, the blaming uh, for, of God, terrible, terrible blaming of God, um, it will all seem foolish at that point when the, when the total purity and righteousness of God is going to be on display. So, so first of all, the judgment is, is really a, a judgment uh, for the righteousness of God. But it's also then um, for God's people because of the perfect uh, life and sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Um, and this is so beautiful when we, through the gospel, we declare, we believe that we are imperfect. We are stained with sin. We are dead in sin, but Jesus is righteous and his righteousness covers over our sin and more than makes up for our shortcomings. And at the last day, Jesus Christ is going to get all the credit for the salvation of God's people. It will be so clear that the reward of paradise is, um, is, is far beyond the worth of, uh, of any goodness that we could claim at that point. And so, so it's good news for God's people. Um, the judge will be our elder brother who has endured false judgment, who has endured scorn and knows uh, what it is to be the uh, uh, object of derision, and will wipe every tear from every believer's eye. Um, at the same time, will send those away from his presence who have 
uh, had had not submitted themselves to Jesus Christ. So it is something to look forward to. It's also something to be to be warning people about. Jesus Christ is going to judge all of us. We need to be prepared for that judgment. Can you tell us a little bit about what Scripture tells us about hell? I know that it's a difficult doctrine even for some of us as Christians. So what do we need to know about it? Yeah, well, C.S. Lewis says that if there if he could erase any doctrine from scripture, it would be hell. And I think a lot of us can sympathize with that. It's, it's almost unbearable to, to think about. And I I think that's actually why a lot of people dismiss hell. Um, You certainly can't dismiss it on exegetical grounds. You, you, you know, you, you read the Bible and in the old Testament, in the new Testament, especially from Jesus own lips, there's this, there's this sort of pulsing, uh, unrelenting testimony of a real place of of penalty for the the those who have rejected the Lord Jesus, and so I think we have this 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 gut uh, repulsiveness toward hell, and in a certain sense, I think that's right. I think we need to maintain. Um, you know, we, we should certainly not rejoice in hell. So sometimes people talk about hell. Sometimes Christians talk about hell as if it's something they're happy about, um, that some people are going to be in hell. And um, God doesn't rejoice in hell. He doesn't rejoice in the destruction of the wicked. And so I think we need to have a very balanced, uh, a, sorry, a very sober um, way of talking and thinking about hell. We need to go where scripture requires us to go, that hell is a real place of un ending uh, shame and suffering for those who had no interest in the righteousness of Christ. I think it just requires integrity to do that, right? Um, uh, So Rob Bell wrote a book a number of years ago called Love Wins. And it was interesting that in that book, he describes heaven as a physical place, a real tangible place but he's unwilling to do the same with hell. And he instead says that hell is sort of like um, the, you know, life with all the best parts sucked out of it. You know, the, 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 the terrors of sin and injustice uh, all kind of rolled into an awful experience, but not a real place and certainly not an eternal place. And, um, that, that's a really dangerous thing to say because Jesus um, describes hell as uh, a place in which um, the, the, the sort of the worm of, of desolation is never destroyed. And so I think it, we, do a, we do a great disservice to um, encourage people to doubt the reality of hell. It's a terrible place. But it's a real place. But it also tells us something about God that's very, very important. It tells us that God hates sin. He's far less tolerant of sin than we are. And that's good. That's really good news. Uh, because it says that God is going is creating a place which the Bible says is, is going to be a place where righteousness will dwell. And everything good will be inside and everything bad will be outside. And so Hal tells us that uh, not only does God hate sin, 
but he hated sin so much that he was willing to send Jesus Christ to endure the full experience of hell for every chosen person of God, every elect person in, in, in just this, this terrifyingly um, compact experience of this isolation from the goodness of God. Um, and so we, we can worship the Lord as the one in Jesus Christ who endured the torments of hell so that we don't have to. So we can't erase hell. It's bad to do so for, uh, for you know, an impulse for evangelism. It's bad to do so for our understanding of God and the incomparable gift of heaven. The last section of your book is Applied Eschatology deals with a little bit more of the practical. Can you talk about how eschatology fits into our Christian lives in a practical way? Yeah, I engage uh, the two issues of the kingdom of God, first of all, and mission, second. And the kingdom of God is, is very, it's very important to connect the idea of the kingdom of God with the end times. Because I think one of the tragedies of American evangelicalism is that the gospel becomes basically a, you know, a personal ticket out of hell, um, sort of like eternal fire insurance. And people talk this way. They, uh, you know, I've, I've heard people, um, you know, t- talk about loved ones who have, who have died and said, well, you know, we're sorry they didn't really live godly, but, you know, at least they, at least they prayed a prayer and they weren't going to go to hell when they died. Um, not only, I mean, that has problems on its own, but it, it says, it says to me, we've lost sight of the importance of, of something bigger in terms of participating in God's work of, of reconciliation. Jesus Christ came into this world preaching the gospel of the kingdom that G, that that God is king over all the world. He he has never stopped reigning. Um, for reasons known only to himself, he allowed this tragedy of the fall. But he's been continuing to work out through the fall uh, a, a beautiful resolution to this to this drama, and and that's what kingdom is. Kingdom says uh, God is king. He is giving to his people a kingdom. We read that in in the book of Hebrews near the end. Uh, We're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And we're receiving it here and now. And so what the kingdom does is it says your walk with the Lord is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But it's also participation in something much bigger. Um, You're an agent of God participating in his work of reconciliation in how you live through your vocation, through your personal integrity, through your care for creation um, and your uh, carrying out a biblical ecology. And so kingdom expands what has become a very narrow understanding of the Christian life. And, and it says that, that, that this whole idea of the kingdom is going to be fulfilled uh, in the reunion of heaven and earth, the place where God dwells and the place where people dwell, the realm where God dwells, the realm where people dwell, and God will be the great king, and we will live in his kingdom forever. And 
And now uh, we are experiencing a foretaste of that. The kingdom is now, uh, and we're waiting for it to be fulfilled. So the kingdom of God is, is a huge topic um, that we explore to, to, to expand our understanding of the Christian life. And then mission. Um, when we ask basic questions like, why hasn't Jesus come back? Um, the answer is missions. Uh, Jesus promises that he will return when the gospel has been proclaimed uh, to, every, to every people. And what that says to us is right now we've got a job to do. And um, we have a patient God who is not desirous that any should perish. And we should share that desire. And so I think the more we understand biblical eschatology, the more committed we're going to be to love the lost through works of mercy, as Jesus requires in Matthew chapter 25, um, and in sharing the gospel, which is both a promise that everyone who trusts in, in Jesus will not perish but have everlasting life, and a command to repent and believe and to bow the, the knee to King Jesus. Well, I know that um, we have to wrap it up here. And if you enjoyed this interview, there's so much more we could have talked about, so much great stuff in the book. So we want to encourage people to go out and buy the book. Where's the best place for people to pick up the book? You know, it's available at Amazon, so that's easier for people. That um, that would be a good option. Uh, otherwise, Reformation Heritage Books, uh, which is heritagebooks.org, uh, has a good deal uh, going on it right uh, right now. I think it's like eleven or twelve dollars. Um, so heritagebooks.org would be a great great place for Amazon. Okay, we'll link those in our episode notes. Well, thank you so much for um, spending this time with us. I think it was just very fascinating, and uh, we're glad that we we're able to to talk about this topic we've been wanting to for a while. And I think this was just perfect for what I was hoping for. Yeah. Your treatment in your book is just very hopeful. So I really encourage our listeners to check it out and give it a read. Thank you both. It's been wonderful talking with you.